After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Hey everyone, it's Rago. I'm back with Mind Rolling and with Alan Wallace, B. Alan Wallace. And I'm so happy to have you here. Welcome, Alan. It's my, my pleasure, Rago. Rago, thank you for having me. Absolutely. So, uh, Alan has been deeply involved with Buddhism over many, many years, close to His Holiness the Dalai Lama has taught uh, at various institutions, I think U- University of California most recently, perhaps. And, uh, that was a long time ago. But oh, yeah, that I was Santa Barbara. I was wondering if you were, you know, yeah. in that area. But I left there, left there 20 years ago, four very good oh, really? years and 20, 20 even better afterwards. <laughs> yeah. So there's a wonderful book called Minding Closely, The Four Applications of Mindfulness, and we'll, we'll get into this. So uh, it's, it's so very rich, and uh, it would take about... Uh, 16,000 podcasts to get to the core of that. Uh, but Alan, I, as I said before we got on, I think we have some, certainly some similar patterns, um, certainly going to the East and certainly being dissatisfied with what was being fed and, mm-hmm. and our environment and so on. I mean, this is many of our stories of going yeah. to the East. We have mutual friends, uh, Jack Cornfield sure. and Sharon and sure. Joseph sure. and so on. So, uh, but how about a little bit of your journey? I mean, from when you were young, what are the things I always get with people? What are the things that help in the realization this is perhaps not reality? And there is a way to be happy and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. Just hearing, um, allowing that to uh, move you along at an early age. Yeah. What were those things? I think defining characteristics of my childhood and youth uh, were two. And that is, I was raised in a very Christian household. My father is a Baptist theologian. And from the age of 13, I was completely focused on pursuing a career in science, specifically ecology, environmental studies. I was going to be a wildlife ac- activist, environmental activist. And so these two themes, on the one hand, very deeply religious background. On the other hand, a strong orientation from age of 13 to science. But then as I moved the teen years, I have increasing discomfort because it seems like the facts about reality that we know were coming from science whereas the values that we cherish were coming from religion, and I saw almost no interface at all between the worldview presented in the Abrahamic tradition, that is what Christian called the Old Testament, the New Testament. I didn't see any dialogue at all, really, 
between this whole worldview. It's a whole, this is the universe, folks, welcome. Or don't feel welcome, but this is what's going on. Yeah. On the one hand, and on the other hand, an entirely different picture of the universe coming, stemming, well, going back really to the early Greeks, but through Galileo, the rise of modern science. So it seemed like there was this fundamental fact and value split, or science and spirituality split. And I just felt like I was being bipolar, you know. And moreover, there were elements of the particular theology to which I was exposed that didn't make any sense to me. And at the same time, science all by itself seemed to be just a whole bunch of facts with no meaning and certainly no sense of transcendence. And so I left the United States in 1970 feeling there was really nothing here I wanted. At all. There was just nothing here I wanted. But I was fluent in German because I'd been raised in Switzerland a couple of times. I lived there twice when I was growing up. So it was very easy for me to take my third year abroad from the University of California, San Diego, just to get out of Dodge, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, American essence. Get out of Dodge. Let's yeah. just be someplace else. Same year I got out of Dodge, exactly in 1972. Yeah, I, and one place it was easy to go, I was still under the shelter of being okay and being appropriate, was to take a third year abroad, my, a junior year abroad, and do it in Germany, which was certainly not America. <laughs> and, but it was during that escapade off to Europe hitchhiking around Europe during the summer of 1970, I came across my first book on Tibetan Buddhism, which was a Tibetan book of the Great Liberation, about Dzogchen, or the Great Perfection. Intuitively, it just called to me. Mm. It seemed to me it was addressing very deep facets of reality, and yet thoroughly permeated by meaning, by transcendence, by something profoundly and divinely good. I couldn't make really much sense of it, that I couldn't practice it at all. It was way above my, my pay level, my pay grade. <laughs> mm. um, but then I matriculated, like a good young man, I matriculated at the University of Göttingen, then in West Germany, planning to still stay in the, within the system, but found that pursuing an ecology major was not possible because they didn't offer a single course in ecology. Philosophy seemed to me very dry and barren, what they had to offer, and that was simply my judgment. But... I found that there was a Tibetan on the faculty, a Tibetan Lama on the faculty. Mm. And I'd read this one book of Tibetan Buddhism, it really stirred me. And so I dropped all my other classes and just studied Tibetan language with the sense, I think I'm finished with Western civilization. Been there, done that, I don't see anything that has any appeal. And so I was ready to get out of Dodge big time. And I bought myself at the end of 19, well, into 1971, the summer, I bought myself a one-way ticket to India to go to Dharamsala, India, to immerse myself in Tibetan culture, the language, the worldview of Tibetan Buddhism. But before I went there, I did pick up one book that really totally made sense to me, that I could practice. And it was really just what I was seeking on a very practical, grounded, one could say phenomenological level, where I lived. And that was a a book that to this day is something of a classic. And it was written by a German monk, Jnana Pondekatera, who trained for years in Sri Lanka, became fluent in Pali, became a very good scholar and practitioner, and wrote a book called The Heart of Buddhist Meditation. And it was on the four foundations of mindfulness, which later I think more and more scholars are translating more like the four applications of mindfulness, of the body, feelings, the mind, and then phenomena. And I read that and I said, boy, now this is fact and value. This is science and its spirituality. Count me in. This I can practice. So the story goes on from there. I'll just jump 50 years. 
I just immersed myself in Tibetan Buddhism, and the story goes on and on. But for ever since then, I've been weaving, like really like a person who takes two braids, or actually even three braids, within Buddhism, weaving back and forth into a single braid that then is stronger than either one of the two strands individually, that of the Pali Canon of Theravada Buddhism, for which I have immense respect and reverence on the one hand, and then this fantastic current of Indo-Tibetan Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism, Vajrayana, Dzogchen, for which I have some inexpressible reference, and weaving these two together. I often call it grounding earth and sky. The earth is right where we live, the Pali Canon experience, radical empiricism, right here where the rubber meets the road. This is where I live. But where I would like to live is in the great perfection in the great perfection, which speaks to the depths of my soul, to my intuition. And it's what I've been focusing on in my practice for the last 30 years. But never leave it behind or feeling, oh, that's inferior. And now I'm not, no, no, it's just a weaving together. So those two, those two strands. And then mm. a, a third strand, I've never lost my admiration and my respect. It has tremendous power, explanatory power, practical benefits. has helped us in so many ways. Number one, that I don't have to walk to the East Coast, wherever you may be located right now, that here we are, we have the clairvoyance and the clairaudience, thanks to the Internet, you know, and our, and our computers. So how to weave these all together? Deep spirituality, deep science, deep Pali Canon, deep Indo-Tibetan Buddhism, and I think I've simply defined my life. That's pretty much what I'm all about. <laughs> I think, how about a little bit of contextualization, Alan, of the great perfection and what we're speaking of? you are speaking The great perfection plunges to the very depths of what it is to be aware. That is, what is the very nature of awareness? What are its origins? What are its potentials? Does it have multiple dimensions? What is the role of consciousness in, the, in reality as a whole? And the great perfection is a way of viewing reality from a perspective that's beyond the very limited context of the human psyche, which clearly arises independence upon a functioning human brain, damage the brain. You don't have a human mind anymore. There is no such thing as a human mind without a human brain. But that doesn't mean that the human mind emerges from the brain, that thoughts and images and love, compassion and memories arise from chemicals. I mean, all that's in the brain really is fat, protein, water, and electricity. So there's an awful lot of neuromythology going on or neural babble going on which has no empirical basis at all. The notion that the mind emerges from the brain is simply a direct implication of holding a metaphysically materialistic worldview. But there's no evidence behind it at all. Zero. And so I've never bought that. It just seems a categorical error to the point of absurdity mm -hmm. to think that my, my love for other people comes from somehow the chemical compound in the brain. Really? How much acid did you drop, dude? You know? And so, no, the mind doesn't come from the brain. It's conditioned by the brain to damage the brain. You damage the mind, totally damage the, the brain, and you don't have a human mind anymore. But we know as little about where the mind came from, that is, modern scientifically, we know as little about the mind, where the mind came from as we know about what happens at death. And I found myself flabbergasted, having something of a scientific background, because eventually I went back to Amherst College and spent two and a half years in pretty intense study of physics, History of physics, philosophy of science. Yeah. Wrote a 530-page thesis on the zero-point energy of the electromagnetic vacuum. So I really did it, and I did the mathematics as well. So when uh -huh. I did science, I did it seriously. Yeah. But to simply 
think that we have some kind of a scientific knowledge that the mind comes from the brain and when the brain dies, you become nothing. If people want to believe that, they're perfectly happy to, just as if they want to believe in Santa Claus. But there's no evidence for it. And so there's a deeper dimension of consciousness about which I'm more confident about this than I am Newton's theory of gravity. And that is consciousness doesn't terminate any more than mass energy terminates. What we know from physics is the conservation principles of matter, energy. You can do all kinds of things with them, but you can't make them turn into nothing. And you never get nothing transforming into something. And I'm utterly persuaded. So I'm flamboyantly wrong. If I'm, if I'm wrong, I'm flamboyantly. Mm-hmm. Yeehaw! Wrong. <laughs> is you can't make consciousness turn into nothing. It didn't emerge out of matter and energy. Matter and energy is not magical voodoo. You know, rub the brain and a genie of consciousness pops out. And so there's a deeper dimension. And this is still a response to your question, a bit of context on Dzogchen of the Great Perfection. Mm. And that is, there's a deeper dimension. And the Hindus knew about this hundreds and hundreds of years before the Buddha came along. Not by adopting some Vedic belief system, but by, by developing samadhi, which is a kind of technology that was developed par excellence in India, far before and far beyond anything ever developed in the Judeo-Christian and Greco-Roman tradition. We haven't, we've never matched them. We're not even in the competition. And so samadhi allows you to penetrate beyond the dimension, the scope, the limitations of the human psyche to an underlying continuum of consciousness that is individuated. And the great Hindu swamis knew this, they experienced it, they knew it. And Taoist yogis have recognized it, and early Christian yogis recognized it, and Sufi yogis recognized it. And the Buddha came along and they recognized it as well. It's one of the most intersubjectively validated truths there is in the universe, because these are very different traditions from the Vedic tradition, the Taoist, the Jude- the, in the Kabbalah, in Judaism, reincarnation is affirmed. So it's really one of those deeply established realities that just doesn't fit well with the materialist worldview. Mm. And so there is that dimension of viewing reality from a deeper transhuman perspective that is still not transcendent in the sense of being divine or anything like that. So that's a deeper perspective. Plato knew, Plato knew about it. Socrates knew about it. Pythagoras knew about it. And then we all forgot about it with the rise especially of materialism and science, modern science. But Dzogchen goes beyond that. And there's a book that also, when I was 20, there were a couple of books, in fact, the two books that had the biggest impact on me mm. when I was 20, where I just ba- basically, I, would, I rented a little apartment right across from the main cathedral in Göttingen, and I just read and meditated, and read and meditated. And so one book, The Heart of Buddha Meditation, huge impact. And the other one was Aldous Huxley's The Perennial Philosophy. Oh, really? I read that. Wow. I read that and it said, oh man, does this make sense? Does this ever make sense? That Christianity is different from Islam, and that's different from Buddhism, and that's different from, from, from Taoism. But the deeper you go, the greater the convergence. And there's still Taoist, and there's still Buddhist, and there's still Christian. But among the world's great contemplative traditions, geometrically speaking, either they just go their separate ways, and they don't really talk, because they're just different. The Christians are realizing a Christian God, and the Buddhas are realizing Nirvana, and the Taoists are realizing the Tao, and they're not the same, they're just parallel tracks. Or the deeper you go, the, wide, the further apart they're getting, it's just geometry. So the deeper you go, wow, are they incompatible. And Aldous Huxley took the, the model, how about, where's the evidence? The deeper you go, the more they come together, to a vanishing point. That is, in perspectival drawing, 
You may not see the vantage point, but you know the lines are converging. But they may not touch, but they're converging. So I don't have the the extraordinary arrogance to say, ah, they all end at the same place. I don't mm-hmm. know that. Mm-hmm. But I'm looking now as a scholar who have a, have a doctorate in religious studies from Stanford, and I've studied this for a long time. I would say my working hypothesis is that among these great contemplative traditions, the deeper you go, the closer they converge. And I think the empirical evidence supports that. And Dzogchen, to my mind, just as in Vedanta, Vedanta is the anta of the Vedas. It's the culmination of the Vedas. It's the high point. It's the apex. It's the zenith of the evolution and the transformation of the Vedic tradition, Vedanta, Vedanta, for which I have profound respect. I would say, and now this is simply a subjective evaluation, but shared by a lot of other people in Tibet, that Dzogchen, or Mahasanti, the great, the great encompassment, the great completion, the great perfection, I see this as the anta of Buddhism, Buddha-anta. And that is, I see it as, this is the grand finale, where it's cutting through the human psyche, it's cutting through this individuated continuum of consciousness from lifetime to lifetime, and it cuts through a truly transcendent ground of being. It's not someone else's. As I think it was Nyanapa, no, it was another, uh, another, another Buddhist scholar said, in the Buddhist view, it's not that the drop dissolves into the ocean, it's that the ocean dissolves into the drop. Hmm. Mm. Wow. And the sense of transcendence that I've not diminished to zero and embraced that which is radically but transcendently and divinely other, but I've recognized that the very concept of myself as an individuated, separate, sentient being, that is an illusion. And if I cut through the illusion, I recognize who I've always been. And I've always been, like everybody else, a Buddha. And so that's the Dzogchen view. Mm. And I find it profoundly resonant with the Vedanta tradition, resonant with the Neoplatonic tradition and Christian mysticism resonant with the Kabbalah. And then, interestingly enough, when we go to the one branch of physics, but I do have some professional training, taken it seriously, written a couple of books, and that's physics, that we go into really cutting edge, but mainstream, not some new agey, new agey kind of deal, you know, trying to make quantum mechanics, you know, something, you know, something that is not, and that arouses the ridicule of professional physicists. No, listening to the great physicists, people like John Wheeler, and, oh, there's this Anton Seininger, and Christopher Fuchs, a younger man, but an outstanding physicist, and others, and they're recognizing that you can no longer even posit the existence of space and time as existing out there in the very fabric of objective reality as one very brilliant physicist at the Institute for Event Study in Princeton, says for numerous reasons, each one of them very compelling, we can no longer posit the existence of space-time as being fundamental in the very nature of reality itself. It doesn't exist. Space-time, I quote, is doomed. And this is Nima Akadi Ahmed. He's an Iranian, current Canadian, American, cutting-edge, brilliant physicist. That's not my opinion. Who cares what my opinion is? But by his peers, he's come to this conclusion. Richard Feynman commented, nobody really knows what energy is. We, it, we know it's conserved, but we don't know what it is. 
And another Nobel laureate says, atoms are no longer regarded as fundamental to the universe. It's simply principles of symmetry. All of this raises the question then, what is the role of the observer in the universe? Because for 400 years it was ignored. And now suddenly you just can't ignore it anymore. What's the role of the observer? Well, you'll never fathom that unless you understand the nature of consciousness. There's no such thing as an observer who is unconscious. But Western science knows nothing about consciousness. It's as much a mystery now as it was when the scientific study of the mind began about 150 years ago. They've made zero progress. Mm -hmm. But it's widespread assumption among Western academics and specifically Western scientists. And I've heard this so many times, I kind of get bored. If we don't know it, nobody knows it. If consciousness is a mystery for us, as one physicist said, nobody understands it. I said, wow, I guess you must be omniscient. Because you know you don't understand, that's humility. But when you said nobody understands, well, when exactly do you achieve omniscience? I really, was there a date? And I know another, another phys- scientist, a very good one, said, nobody knows the nature of absolute reality. Well, I accept that you don't, but how do you know nobody knows? Mm. And so there, this is where you and I, you and I did not go to India to convert them to our religion or our education system or make good capitalists out of them. I think I don't know really much about your background. I'd love to learn more, but I know I, and I'm sure this is true for you. And so many as of our generation, we went there in humility. We went there in humility. Or as I was told when I first met the person who's been my root, my Sadhguru, my primary spiritual mentor for the last 49 years, when I first met His Holiness the Dalai Lama in the fall of 1971, mm-hmm. he told me, you're like a beggar. Alan, you're like a beggar. You've come here and you're seeking nourishment. But you're like a beggar. You're like a homeless person. And we're offering you the very best. We're inviting you in like we're family. We're offering you our very best. Because I was concerned with pride. I really was. That's why I asked to meet with him and have my first audience with him. I was studying Dharma. I was learning more. I was gaining understanding. And I thought, oh my goodness, I'm already starting to feel superior to other people. Where is this going to go? I'll be the most arrogant person on the, on the planet hmm. when I achieve enlightenment? That doesn't work. So I said, how do I learn more and try to be a better person and gain, grow in compassion and wisdom and patience and all the virtues? I want to. But how do you grow in virtue and not feel I'm more virtuous than you? How do you grow and not feel hmm. self-righteous? You pose and this superior? to me. I, I po- that was my one question. That was my rationale. Why are you taking up the Dalai Lama's time? Because I don't know the answer to this question. I'm clueless, but I know I don't want to go there. I want to grow in virtue, but I don't want to have arrogance as a result of looking down on everybody else. And that was his response. You came here, you're looking for nourishment. And we're providing you with nourishment. So, and he asked me, if we invite you to our home, and we're sitting down to a great feast, and we invite you to eat to your complete satisfaction, have seconds, have thirds, eat until you just can't eat anymore and you're totally delighted and satisfied. He said, when you finished your meal, do you feel proud? I said, no. (laughs) What do you feel? Well, that's a rhetorical question. I feel gratitude for heaven's sakes. And I can say that that didn't forever quelch any impulse of pride or arrogance in me. I wish it had. But at least he set me in the right direction. Mm. Because whenever I think of the many teachers I had had from, from Sri Lanka, from India, from Tibet, from Bhutan, from Mongolia, and then the wonderful education I've had in the West at Amherst College, Stanford, overwhelmingly, I've had a wonderful education, really an outstanding education. Oh, by the way, I got it all for free. 
Really? I got it all for free, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I asked, otherwise I couldn't have gotten it, you know? Mm-hmm. It was all for free. So then you can see the commonsensical, not the virtuous or the noble or the lofty, sublime response, but the common sense response. It's just gratitude. Mm-hmm. And that's overwhelmingly what I feel. Mm-hmm. Back to you, oh, Robert. Thank you for that. Uh, and I'll just tell you a little bit, because uh, as you were talking about all the different paths, do they lead to the same place? And um, your experience seems to be, uh, and mine, that uh, that that uh, it's all subjective from our point of view, as far as I'm concerned. But I would say what happened to me when I went to India, and I went because I wanted to meet Ram Dass's guru, and, oh, yeah. Uh, I, as soon as I saw Ramdas all lit up, I was, okay, I want that because I yeah. was so dissatisfied with, uh, with everything else. And I went there and, uh, the very first thing I n- noticed when I met Neem Karoli Baba was an absence. Mm-hmm. I had never encountered uh, a being with an absence of um, I mean, I can characterize it now in, in, in Buddhist terms and so on. In fact, I did this with uh, Roshi Joan Halifax in a podcast one day. Mm-hmm. and uh, But basically, I asked her what she thought of him since she's hung out with Ramdas all the time. And, you know, she's Zen Roshi and so on. And, and she said, I said, well, what do you see when you look in that picture of Neem Karoli Baba? He's, and she said, emptiness. Mm-hmm. And that, it, characterize exactly i couldn't put it in those terms when i first met uh, i used to say it was kind of like a computer that just did what was the right thing for people one way, <laughs> one way or the other and there wasn't a thing making it happen the thing that we are all used to in the back and forth and give and take with another human being mm-hmm. and and then of course the first things this um, directs this question of do all paths lead to the same place? And the first thing he would he would do this sub ek, it's all one, and he'd rattle out Buddha, Krishna, Christ, all of it. One, there is only there's one thing going on, not a multitude of things going on. And we grew to understand that this being was the polarity that we all encounter in ourselves was gone. Mm-hmm. The, 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 and strange thing, of course, is that it's a bhakti tradition, right? Except mm-hmm. for one thing that, uh, and this is, when I read this in, in the book, I was like, okay, we really do dissect a lot of stuff. But <laughs> I, um, the, and this crosses two things, because I think you say in the book how much, how important Jesus' teachings are. As, sure. as part of all of what we're talking about. What's sure. the first thing? I, I asked them how to meditate. <laughs> I think I'd get a mantra or something. Meditate like Christ. When he was nailed to the cross, he did not feel yeah. pain. He was lost in love with every sentient being, which was way, talk about pay grade thing. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I got Ramdas to ask him about that the next day, and, and, and all of that got manifested. But that was, you know, going to India for that. Plus, I'm Jewish, which... Mm-hmm. made it even a little bit more huh what jesus yeah. and so so that was there as well and um i just i just think that the 
when you talk about Dzogchen, and I'm most familiar with it through my friend Lama Surya Das, who's a pretty great mm-hmm. Dzogchen teacher, and was with uh, Maharaji. That was the fir- his first guru. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Uh, and so before he was even that far into Tibetan teachings, he went to see Maharaji the first time. And Maharaji was in the back in a room. So people said, well, he's not here, but he'll come out. Meanwhile, just sit in front of this, uh, meditate here, in front of the uh, tucket. And he did so. And his experience was that of the beyond a man in a blanket thing. Sure. And he completely experienced. Then he went and met the man in the blanket. It was like, um, huh? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Then he was like, he couldn't really grasp it but later came to understand that the 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 experience that he had through meditative experience that he had of what this thing was was all about uh great perfection Dzogchen, beyond uh, uh duality beyond polarization yeah. and and so on so that's my story mm-hmm. my little story oh boy it's amazing, though, eh? All of our stories. So, oh, so wait. So what I'm saying, I was trying to say also is that with this bhakti, um, we were in the bhakti practice, right? The yoga of devotion and so on. That was the practice. Um, at the same time, I'd say, I mean, we were, I think, a couple of hundred, not more than 200, 300 people from the West met this being. And most of us, I would say, somehow were directed where? To Goenka. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And put through Vipassana meditation, Vipa- not meditate, Vipassana practice. And of yeah. course, you know, Samantha, Samantha, Samatha uh, meditation starting with mm-hmm. one pointedness. Sure. And um, that got really integrated with us as a foundational practice. And then it led to many of us, and I, I, I think you know Danny Goldman, who's also oh, close sure. with this whole sure. And he was with us at that point, at that mm-hmm. point in time. And so it was uh, the flourishing of what I call now the, the vast wonder of inclusive relationship to bhakti of discriminating wisdom has been mm-hmm. ramdas himself said i i did you know cuz he, he did a lot of different courses uh, as you may know and he he would come out of it and say now i was way more prepared to be able to take the teachings if you would call it maharaji actually never taught anything but just hanging out in that kind of a space and utilizing it in a way which ramdas mm-hmm. ended up doing so uh goenka and you yourself got there as well. Mm-hmm. I took Goenka's course in 1974. Uh-huh. He came to, to Dharmazala. And I was oh, a Buddhist monk at the time. I, mm. was, I was a Buddhist monk for 14 years. And I was studying very intensively, receiving classic Tibetan Buddhist monastic training. Mm. Uh, and a friend of mine, who was a very strong devotee of Goenka, she invited him to Dharmazala, a stronghold of Tibetan Buddhism, the home of the Dalai Lama. Yeah. And he, he gave his 10-day course, and the Dalai Lama told all of us in my, in my monastery, all the rest of them were Tibetan, I was the only Westerner, and he told all of us that we should attend this 10-day retreat with Goenka. And so 
I did. I went. Down. I heard that. Yeah, I heard about and that. And attended it. And I think what we began at four o'clock in the morning. We meditated eleven hours a day, hmm. and it was a real eye opener for me because there's a certain aspects of Tibetan monastic training that are very academic, theoretical, and maybe logic and debating, lots and lots of study, very very rich theory, and that's what I was immersed in at that time. And I finished all the preliminary training. And then there was a little break. We went down for Goenka's retreat. And before it was even over, the 10 days were over, I already sent a message to the private office of the Dalai Lama, because I had a personal relationship with him at that point, and said, as soon as possible, I would very, very much like to have an audience with His Holiness. And so that was arranged. So just at the end of the, of the retreat, then I had a one-on-one encounter with Goenka, asked him some questions. And as soon as I left him, I went directly right up to the private office, stepped right in and had an audience with His Holiness. And I told him, I'm looking at the coming years of my monastic training within this Tibetan tradition. And for the time being, it has no appeal to me. Because all I want to do, now that I've spent 11 hours a day with my mind, I see I've got to clean up my own act. Now is not a time for me to become a scholar and master of Buddhist theory and Mahayana and so forth and so on. Uh, I would just like to purify my own mind and get to know my own mind. And so with your permission, I would like now to withdraw from this monastic college in which I was training. Because all I want to do now for the foreseeable future is just go off and meditate. And what I want to meditate on are the four applications of mindfulness. And I, frankly, I was terrified. I really was quite, quite frightened because my admiration for him runs so deep. I mean, utterly deep. I would mm-hmm. imagine like you have, you know, mm-hmm. gurus, that I knew and what I had. Holiness. <laughs> and his holiness. And it's his holiness on top of that. It's his holiness. But I knew in the depths of my heart, this is what I have to do. It was just totally clear. I need to withdraw from this very intellectual training for all of its value and has a great value. I need to go off and just meditate closely apply my mindfulness, my body, feelings, mind, and so on. And so as my mind, it was just, it was a fait accompli, it's a done deal, I got to do this. At the same time, I was dreading a possible response uh, that he would say, are you out of your mind? (laughs) You have a superb education system here that you're receiving, you're doing very well in it. Why are you throwing that away to go off and meditate? But he didn't do that at all. All my fears turned out to be unfounded. And he said, hmm, you have a good point. Excellent. Go for it. Here's one of my own secondary tutors. He will guide you. Very good. Very good. <laughs> Off wow. you go. And so then I just, I was almost dancing and skipping and singing when I left there. Because now the way was so clear. So for the next year and a half, I just focus on meditation. <laughs> and it was the four applications of mindfulness. I met a monk that had been trained for five years in, in Thailand. And I received 100 Dharma talks from him and guidance in the four applications of mindfulness. So from that point onwards, it's always been weaving, weaving. Eventually, I, w- I went off to, to Switzerland for four, four and a half years, continued monastic training, went back to India, trained under the guidance of the Dalai Lama. My visa ran out. Off I went to Sri Lanka. And I was there for six months in retreat mm-hmm. and trained under a great Sri Lankan master, Balagoda Ananda Maitreya. He was a great one. Mm-hmm. And I lived with him. And he taught me again, Satipatthana, Anapansasasi, mindfulness of breathing. So I've been weaving these together all along. Mm. I, I was invited for the first time to teach in 1976 by a group of Swiss, Swiss hippies. Mm. And up in, the, up in the Alps, because I was living in a monastery in Switzerland at the time. And what I taught was um, shamatha, ways of training attention, and four applications of mindfulness. Mm. 
Wonderful. It was foundational. Yeah. Wonderful. I like the thing where uh, you had really started delving into meditation, encountering the mind, and you, I think you went to His Holiness and said, this is awful. You quoted uh, Annie Lamont, who, you know, who we love. Uh, My mind is like a neighborhood. I don't want to yes. be out there alone in it. <laughs> don't, go in, don't go there alone. Right? Yeah. Well, it very much felt like that. I mean, I was sitting there for 11 hours a day and looking at this junkyard, a junkyard that was animated. And I thought, oh my goodness, I don't want to die this way. And actually, I had a lot of illness when I was in India that first time. I got hepatitis three times. Mm. And the third time almost killed me. So I'd gotten very close to death. Really, really close, let alone three types of parasites and who knows what else yeah, I got yeah, there. Because right. <laughs> I'm, li- I'm living in a refugee community and I'm living on about a dollar or two a day, you know, because I, when I went off to India, all I had was, I didn't even have, have enough money for a round trip ticket. So I'm, I w- it was voluntary poverty, emphasis <laughs> on voluntary. Mm. But uh, I really knew death could be very close at any time uh, because I'd, I'd flirted with it repeatedly, with hep- hepatitis especially. So the, the reality of Anitta, impermanence, impermanence, was very vivid in my mind. And when I left the monastery, eventually I recommenced that training for a number of years and then quit again, went off and meditated. But living each day such that if right now, today, June 17th, if this turns out to be my last day, because I'm going to die tonight of a stroke or a heart attack or a comet will hit the house or whatever, Mm -hmm. that I will look back on the day with no regret and look back on the life with no regret. Mm. And I actually have lived that way ever since then. When I got that close to death, I uh-huh. see, oh, I'm young and healthy until I'm not. I'm young and I'm going to be dead. Mm. And so for me to spend this time with you today, yeah, this is the great perfection of right now. Mm. Beautiful. Exactly. It's called Be Here Now, the old days. I've heard that one, yes. you heard that one? It's the 50th anniversary, oh. actually, of that book this year. Uh-huh. For us, yeah. And you, uh, since it is the 50th anniversary, and you mentioned to me that you spent some time with Ram Dass uh, back in the day, how about sharing a little of that with us? We have a number of mutual friends, and this was now, gosh, it would have been the early 1990s. And I'd been a monk for 14 years, I'd been years in retreat, solitary retreat, matriculated in graduate studies at Stanford in religious studies, living there. I started my PhD, my, my graduate studies when I was 39. And we have a mutual friend, um, Roger Walsh, and his mm-hmm. wife, Frances Vaughn. Yeah. And then there was the, I think, of the Episcopalian Church, the, the dean or the principal person from the Episcopalian Church. And there are a couple of other rather well-known people. Oh, there was, um, sure, um, Houston Smith. Oh. Houston Smith. Oh. And so, and I was just a kid, you know, all of these are rather, you know, celebrated people, famous people. And I'm just kind of a nobody graduate student. But Roger Walsh kind of took me under his wing and invited me into this group. And so I would think it went on for at least a year, maybe longer. Once a month, mm. we, would, we would gather for a long evening in Francis Vaughn's beautiful home up in Sausalito, looking out over the bay. And we'd come in and we would just shoot the breeze, you know, in a very meaningful wow. way. Uh, each person would offer something, and then we just, it was spiritual friendship. I think spiritual mm-hmm. friendship in a very warm, ecumenical, open-hearted, and well-informed way. And so those were really cherished memories at that time, mm-hmm. that, that series of one-month 
uh, nightly gatherings. Yeah. Mm, Thanks to my friend Roger Walsh and mm. Houston Smith, who I got to also know rather well. Yeah, a beautiful man too. Wow. Oh, indeed, yeah. Gentle oh. soul. I never knew that you... It just never came up with Ramdas. Uh, I'm an insignificant person. I'm, I'm often no. not mentioned because I'm not very important. <laughs> oh, if you know Ramdas, you know there wasn't anything like that. every person was met full. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But there's no reason to mention me. Well, I'm going to now, whenever I can get a hold of him. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so the book has so much uh, to offer, uh, honestly. I mean, I... I've really uh, enjoyed. It's 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 not a, it's not a book you go through and read as a read through one time, but you know I I noticed just how much, how many little notes that I've made throughout the book and stuff that you know interest me and uh, yeah I just want to you know thank you, really, it's uh, it's, it's quite book. wonderful, Alan. My honor to be to pass it on, to pass yeah. it on, whatever but wisdom is there is not mine. <laughs> yeah, but well, there, there's in terms of we don't have that much time, but um, I th- I think, and this is something, it's called cultivating the four immeasurables. Oh yeah, Brahma Viharas, and you know our friend Sharon Salzberg has mm-hmm. taught a lot around that. That's very important has, yeah. to her, One and of her great contributions I, indeed. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. Um. Oh, they are, of course, the four immeasurables, loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. And uh, I have to say that, you know, being that I get a tremendous amount of mail through ramdas.org and all of that, and just being in different uh, situations at retreats and so on with teachers, uh, there's such a commonality from people or of, gee whiz, how are we going to get enlightened here? I got to get on to some enlightenment here. You know, like mm-hmm. that's kind of what the purpose is, is it not? And, uh, and of course, we have something, uh, Ramdas probably had the best story when he he went to Neem Karoli Bob and he said, you know, expect, you know, he had all these incredible Buddhist friends who were, you know, practicing for hours and hours on end and got special Tibetan mantras or whatever. And he said, well, how about, what's the practice that I can become enlightened? You know, he, I don't know if he used the word enlightened, but it was absolutely nothing different. And Maharaji said, feed people. And, and Ramdas said, and he tells the story really great feed people what kind of thing is that what a real practice this what is that you know and you say what kind of mickey mouse you know how ramdas used to talk (laughs) and then he asked again love everyone and tell the truth or something like that right and uh so our my own response these days and is to forget about that so this is not something to think about. What's to think about is, as His Holiness says, kindness is my only religion. And I think that's why the, the Brahma Viharas are so extraordinarily important that we get really into a, a referential point of view around loving kindness, 
right? Around compassion and so on. I mean, this to me, especially in the age that we're living in and the difficulties that we are in from many different angles. Mm -hmm. uh, so can you just, uh, yeah, characterize it the way you have seen it and, and uh, describe it? I would it. like to, I'm, I'm happy to respond, but I'd like to begin with a request, a preface with a request. Yeah. Um, because I can only paraphrase words of tremendous wisdom and eloquently expressed, but I've not memorized them verbatim, but only the gist. Mm -hmm. And the gist is from your own guru, and that is, but it's a paraphrase. So it's, it's, a, it's not as well said as originally. But when I view the world with the eyes of wisdom, I see that I am nothing. When I view the world with the eyes of compassion, I see that I am everything. Does that ring a bell? Totally. Yeah, it's that so, thing. It's, it's around the concept of emptiness. And it's not, of course, many, many, many people think that's a nihilistic thing. Empty is nothing. And uh, our friend... Uh, Bob Thurman, certainly he's got great <laughs> talks about nothing. What do you mean nothing? You know how he talks. Crazy? <laughs> sure. Not nothing? He's a New Yorker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's so good. And then uh, I love how he characterized it at this one retreat we did, that emptiness is um, the womb of compassion. I think he characterized it in, in one way that way. So, Yeah. So that was a paraphrase from the passage from Thou Art That. Hmm. And so I love speaking about, reflecting upon, trying to immerse myself in these four sublime virtues of the heart. That would be a very loose translation hmm. of the four measurables or the four divine abidings. Uh, but where the wisdom comes in, because there is a statement from the Buddha that wisdom without skillful means, and let's just paraphrase that as compassion, that wisdom without compassion is bondage, and compassion without wisdom is bondage. And I think there's profound truth in that. So if we return to the four immeasurables, and there's a sequence to them, it begins with metta, Pali, metta, or maitri in Sanskrit, loving kindness is a good translation. But it's not simply an emotion, it's not simply a feeling, it's an aspiration a heartfelt aspiration. May we all find has and its causes. Not just may we all be well and happy. That's a lovely thought. It's a lovely aspiration. But it's more than an emotion. It is an aspiration. But it brings in the wisdom when we look at all those around us, humans and non-humans alike, including oneself, of course. Say, may we all find happiness, genuine happiness, sukha, or satchit ananda, the ananda part. Hmm. Bliss. And bliss, but authentic bliss, bliss that comes from knowing the nature of reality, not from simply having a, a, a wonderful, wonderful, pleasant stimulus and responding to it. But what are the causes? So to wish that everyone around you can be well and happy, safe and secure, find fulfillment and joy, that's a lovely, beautiful aspiration. But if you don't know what the causes of happiness are, then you don't know how to proceed. And so what are the causes of happiness? What are the true causes of happiness? And they're not outside. They are inside. All the wisdom traditions of the world tell us this. And that's where the wisdom comes in. May all sentient beings, may we all be free of suffering. The whole bandwidth of suffering. All vulnerability to suffering. And its causes. Then we have to go to the second noble truth. The first one is the reality of suffering. But the second one is the reality of what makes us fundamentally vulnerable to suffering. 
Why are we afraid? Why do we feel anxious? Why do we feel unhappy? A sense of dissatisfaction. Dig deep. Don't blame your parents. Don't blame the environment or your your brain or anything else. Don't blame yourself either. Look deep. And this is where the wisdom comes in. Why? And you'll find it within, but not in the environment. And then the empathetic joy, taking delight. This is an emotion. It's taking delight in others' joys, their successes, their virtues. But when we bring this into the Indo-Tibetan tradition, it turns out to be once again an aspiration. May we all never be separated from sublime happiness or bliss, genuine well-being. May we never be parted from that, this well-being that is free of suffering. And once again, it's an aspiration. But how do we access that? How do we access, experience, realize, and sustain such a quality of well-being like your own guru and Ramana Maharshi and the Dalai Lama and the list goes and St. Francis of Assisi and so on, Mm. so on. Nobody Mm. has a monopoly. But these great saints and sages, and I've known many of them, people, lamas of mine who spent 20 years in concentration camps in Tibet, being tortured, being being starved, and so forth. And one of my, I was just listening to Gatshen Rinpoche's oh video on Oh my God, his Alan, you, I, I can't believe you just t- brought him up. Oh my God. There's, there's I, uh, Yeah, really, I spent time with him uh, when he taught in Los Angeles. And when you said 20 years, of course, he was in prison, met his guru there. And right. the actuation of the teachings in this being, considering what he went through, is extraordinary. It it gives everyone real faith that it's all inside us, possible. Indeed. And he's one of my lamas indeed, and the teachings I receive him are Mahamudra. Mm. And Mahamudra and Dzogchen are basically just like the left and right hand. They're utterly, they're non-dual really. But in that video, I'll be very brief here, in that video of his life, it's an extraordinary video, it's a free download now, um, he'd been in prison for something like 10 years. And there's starvation, there's torture. He, he really tried to commit suicide. He, he says, he said exactly how that occurred. Mm. He, that is, he did something to a guard, hoping that he would kill him. And he did something very insulting. Not because he despised him, but he was just hoping he would retaliate and kill him and let him out, out let him out of prison by letting him out of his body. But at one point, the prison guards looked, to, to, or maybe the, you know, the, the head of the prison took something of a liking to him and said, just speak up and, you know, we're going to make your life easy here. It can be a lot easier than it is now. Just speak up, you know, go along with us, you know. And he said, but I don't want to be out of prison. I'm quite comfortable here, but thanks anyway. <laughs> and I have other lamas. I translated for Paul Gyatso. He was in prison for 35 years. I've translated for Yang Chenabache, Sikhimese Lama, 18 years. Mm. And the way they could go through hell on earth, because I really, hard for me to imagine anything really worse than being in a concentration camp, tortured on a regular basis, and starved at any moment, knowing they could just put a bullet in your head, just because they felt like it. They're bored. And thinking, well, then, you know, isn't this the worst? And it's pretty close to the worst that I think that a human being can experience. And to weather that, without resentment, without hatred, maintaining a sense of well-being, this is what I would aspire for. That I could tap into such a deep wellspring of genuine well-being that even if I were put into that situation, that I could respond like my lamas, 
I do not claim to have reached that. But that's my aspiration. And then finally, among the four measurables, I'm still responding to your yeah, yeah. rich question. Yeah. The fourth one, equanimity, is certainly not a wrong translation. But since I wrote that book, I think impartiality is a bit closer. They're both good. But it is, but the way it's phrased in the, in the inter-Tibetan tradition is may we all be free of attachment to those whom we regard as close and aversion to those regard as not close. My side and your side, Americans and Germans, white people and people of different skimmentation, Buddhists and non-Buddhists, men and women, all these divisions we create and preferring one side, identifying with one side and as soon as we bring the wall down, here's where I stand, then we have everybody else who's not where I stand. Mm -hmm. And therefore clinging, attachment, closeness to those who I side and aversion, and may we be free of that. May we, free, may we all abide in impartiality. And so when your, when your guru said, feed them, I was thinking he didn't say, feed my sheep. I think he said that. Jesus. Mm-hmm. And is it not Jesus who said, love your enemy, love your neighbor as yourself. And this is core dharma. This is core dharma. It's there from the lips of the greatest sages and the saints, mm-hmm. East and West, ancient and modern. And so this is actually the grand finale. This is the grand culmination. Because we're loving so many people, probably like you, when we were both back in 1970, and certainly like me, I was out without direction. I knew what I didn't want, but I didn't know what I did want. It didn't crystallize. There was no path. There was no method. And so I was a wandering beggar, as the Dalai Lama exactly said. You were a wandering beggar, a homeless person, <laughs> when you came here. And you were really, really hungry. And I was chowing down, you know, in the Dharma. <laughs> you and me and both. So, exactly. And so what we need when we begin, for so many of us, and I'm sure this is many, for many of the so-called genera- Generation X people and so forth, just looking, what shall I strive for? What's a vision? I want a vision of a good life, and I'm not a drawn to power and fame and wealth and success and all of that, thank you very much. But how many stories we do we need to hear of wealthy, powerful, famous people who are miserable? How many stories we need to hear before we finally get it? That's not the way to find happiness. There's nothing wrong with it, but don't invest in that if what you want is happiness. Because some of the happiest people I've known were, were Tibetan yogis living on one dollar a day. You know, up in the mountains above Dharmasala. And they were poor and so happy, so serene, mm. so grounded. So first of all, we need to be uplifted. We have to have vision, like the Native American vision quest. What are you questing for? What's your vision? Where are you going? What's your vision now of truly flourishing? And loving kindness offers us a vision. And we go into, we venture into the realm of possibility. This is possible. This is possible. You've met your gurus. And you see, this is possible. You may not have reached their state of realization yet, but you know, if then, then why not you? And then why not me? And why not anybody else? Mm. We need to be uplifted. But then, unless we become airy-fairy, lost in the clouds, and we lose touch with the reality of everyone going on around us, with the COVID and inequality and racism and sexism and so forth and so on. Compassion brings us back to the here and now. It's wonderful to to imagine, to envision and to strive for genuine well-being, enlightenment, awakening, union, the one. 
But in the meantime, meanwhile, back on the ranch. Yeah, meanwhile, one back American on the to ranch. another. Exactly. Back on the ranch, look, this is a world yeah. that's in catastrophe. This is a world facing a crisis, the likes of which we've never seen in the 200,000 years of human history. It's never been this bad. And unless we change our trajectory, we are doomed as a human civilization, dragging down countless other species into oblivion with ourselves. Hey, well, everybody, what we're doing now is self-destructive. And so compassion, may we all be free of suffering and the causes of suffering, and what are they? And so we get grounded. But when we get grounded and we immerse our hearts and minds, our souls, in the magnitude of suffering and evil, the amount of hatred, malevolence, genetic, you know, mm, the the list goes on and on. You're a Jew, you don't need to be told. None of us need to be told. We just have to open our eyes. And it's so easy to fall into despair. I'm one person. Yeah. One person, what can I do? And fall into despair. And the Dalai Lama said, things are hopeless only when you lose hope. Hmm. So we need to be uplifted again. And we need to look back out in the world and recognize how much virtue is there. How much good is there? How much compassion? How much wisdom? Look at it. And we say, oh my goodness. Yeah. You and I, we have so many kindred souls all over the world. Let's make sure we unite we join hands, and then we can rise up, and we yeah. can overcome the suffering and the evil in the world. So we balance out, and then it's the great equanimity, the great impartiality, the grand finale of these four immeasurables, and let us do so impartially. Yeah, beautiful, Alan. And then the last thing that I would say and quote you is, because uh, many people will say, well, I understand, and I am, I, I feel very connected to everything that uh, you're saying. But what's my, what do I do? What's, what, what is the first thing that I can do? Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it's in this book. And it originally, you quote both Asanga and Tsongkhapa. And we're talking about 4th century CE and then, you know, for, uh, 13th century. Uh, and it's about, Attention. It's about mm. attention and introspection, right? And here's what you say. And I, I think everybody taking this very practical advice, which everyone can relate to, uh, is the first step. First, one foot in front of the other. Introspection monitors the meditative process and recognizes attentional imbalances attentional imbalances, spacing out, laxity, dullness, sleepiness, restlessness, excitation, distraction, agitation, and so forth. It alerts us, this is not working. Please regain your balance. It's like a, you know, a sign, a fluorescent sign that goes off. With intelligence and will, we can balance the attention. Mindfulness prevents the attention from straying, and introspection recognizes when it has strayed to key faculties of the mind. We all have that. We can all engage in that way. Vipassana, I recommend to everybody, anybody who says, what do I do about meditation? And there's all sorts of different ones from transcendental to mantra and so on. I, I say, okay, look up uh, our insight uh, 
of friends, uh, Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg sure. and Jack Cornfield, and you will absolutely be able to get the a basis going where this kind of introspection, which really uh, and it's it's it comes straight from uh, mindfulness, and uh, it, it it will allow one to get. Uh, much more balanced, much more balanced, and a real idea of the self-interest that we carry around on a day-to-day basis, and it will eventually dissipate. It has. I, I vouch for myself over all these years, that has happened. I vouch for the fact the reactivity uh, thing has gone way down and much more spaciousness. It does work. And then, of course, with my bhakti background, mm-hmm. I vouch for the mm-hmm. fact that grace is real. Right. Right. So I think we'd probably need to sign off. Yep. So he introduced me as B. Alan Wallace, and that is my nom de plume. And I, my parents always called me Alan, not by my first name, Bruce. Oh. And so I'm B. Alan Wallace. I'm B. Alan Wallace, and an acronym, acronym of that is Balanswala. Balanswala. <laughs> <Walla> means. <laughs> I'm a Walla. I'm a Chai Walla. Al is a balance Walla. Yeah. And I'm a balance Walla. Providing so balance. This is it. Yeah, and this is very I'll much a book. I'll my best. And we will, everybody will have all of this in the show notes and links to Alan's work and this particular book, of course. And some of the, you know, uh, that Garchin Rinpoche film will. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and my favorite uh, word, Alan, and I'll leave with this is impartiality. I love that rather than equanimity. I love that. Very good. Very good. Very good. Thank you. Okay, everybody, we'll see you next week on Mind Rolling. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com and you'll uh, you'll be able to we uh, guess who's with us now, Alan? Tell me. The wonderful and incredible Alan Watts. We've got a podcast going with him. Isn't that fun? The Wisdom of the Insecurity. I gobbled up his books back when I was in, in college. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, yeah. So Deeply we're really inspiring. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Be well. Thank you. <laughs>